Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. All right, everybody, welcome back. Now, as we continue into this series on waterway regeneration, I reached out to Judith Schwartz, a wonderful author who tells stories to explore and illuminate scientific concepts and cultural nuance. Now, today we'll be talking about her two most recent books, Water in Plain Sight and The Reindeer Chronicles, both of which feature incredible case studies of the importance of a healthy water cycle to the health of our ecosystems and global climate regulation. Now, Judith is known for taking a clear-eyed look at global environmental, economic, and social challenges and finds insights and solutions in natural systems. She also writes for numerous publications, including The American Prospect, The Guardian, Discover, and Scientific American. In this interview, Judith begins by explaining some essential information on the water cycle beyond just the simple rain and evaporation rotation that we all learned in grade school. She also walks me through the ways that it interacts with plant life to affect the rainfall of an area and to hydrate the land. Now from there we explore some of the incredible examples of ecosystem regeneration that she highlights in her books, and we even get into some of the mind-expanding questions that you can use to reevaluate your own understanding of the potential of your own regenerative projects and dreams at the end of this episode. Beyond just the clear information of water's hidden functions in the global ecology, Judith is a great storyteller and helps to connect the hard facts with the personal and intimate side of these projects and journeys. So put your mind in imagination mode and I'll hand things over now to Judith. Hey Judith, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. It's great to finally get to talk to you. I've been following your work for a while and, uh, and I've been looking forward to this for a little bit. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So look, um, one of my favorite things that I know from your work and some of the talks that I have listened to in the past is that you're very good about changing the emphasis on part of the climate discussion towards where it should really be, which is the water cycle, rather than all this focus just on the carbon cycle. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of the water cycle in climate regulation to start us off? Right. So, you know, we've just... When we talk about climate these days, it's just what immediately we go to, our conversations go to, is the carbon cycle, is the the level of CO2 in the atmosphere. 
However, if you step back a bit and pose the question, how does the Earth manage heat? What we get to is all kinds of different water-based processes. So um, anyway, I'll just start off with a, with a quote that I think is so revealing from an Australian farmer, author, all-around maverick named Peter Andrews. And he's written a couple of really fabulous books called Back from the Brink and Beyond the Brink. And from an Australian perspective, but there's so much that all of us can learn. Okay, so what he says is plants manage water and in managing water, they are managing heat. Okay, I love that because it's kind of a, a, like a haiku. But if we kind of unpack that a bit, basically what I learned through writing Water in Plain Sight, the book about water, is the extent to which plants are driving the show. Plants are, mo are moving moisture, directing moisture, transforming moisture from water to vapor, which is in itself a cooling mechanism and therefore is central to water, to climate regulation, temperature regulation. So the main, so in, in that book, Water in Plain Sight, my goal was to look at water as a verb, as opposed to water as this thing that we want, we need, maybe you have water, I want water, maybe we fight about it, um, maybe we pipe it here or there, but how water works. And a couple of processes that are really important that have everything to do with the regulation of the climate are transpiration and condensation and also infiltration, which allows for those other processes to occur. So basically, transpiration is the upward movement of water through a plant. A plant pulls water from the, from the roots, uses it and its metabolism and all its other functions, and releases moisture into the air. This is a cooling mechanism. Since it's a cooling mechanism, it is consuming heat and so and taking that solar radiation as, as it hits the ground and dispersing it into the atmosphere at a higher level. So um, when you walk into a, let's say, all right, I'm here in Vermont looking outside, okay, a meadow. When, okay, you've got two bits of ground here. There's a meadow and there's a sidewalk. When you, in a hot summer day, you, your feet want to be on that meadow for many reasons. It's cooler partly because of the coverage, but also because of the transpiration that's happening, that it's the ambient coolness is um, a result of that. Whereas the solar radiation, the sunlight, when it beams on that sidewalk or even more so dark asphalt, the solar radiation has no place to go but right there. It kind of sits there and it heats it up. Whereas the solar radiation on, on a, in a meadow is 
that heat is being continually transformed and released in a latent form in the vapor. And so you have more coolness. So the water cycle is working and cooling. And so this is even more of a factor in forests because you, when you have trees, trees are larger and they're working with more water. They're transforming more water. And that has a, the collective transpiration of trees means not only more cooling, but also more movement of moisture. So trees are pulling in the moisture. That's a, a phenomenon known as the biotic pump. And they're releasing moisture and that moisture is moving elsewhere. So it's, so when we think of, of rain, you know, how do we get rain? Often we think about the large water cycle, which is from that moisture moves from large bodies of water, the ocean, and then kind of turn, then you get clouds and then it turns into, then you get rain. But when you pose the question, how does that moisture get inland? You know, if here I am in Vermont. It's not near the coast by any means, but we get plenty of rain. It's because of the forests that are pulling the moisture in. So plants are working all the time, directing moisture, pulling moisture in. And it's really important for climate because embodied in that moisture is tremendous solar energy radiation and heat it's conveying it's conveying heat through the atmosphere there's a a botanist named Jan Pokorny who has said that evapotranspiration and the evapo part added to the transpiration of plants refers to also the evaporation from the surrounding soil but that that is the largest mover of energy on Earth. So it's an invisible process, but a really meaningful process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that puts it in perspective really well. And it kind of goes against perhaps what a logical way of thinking is that, you know, plants bring up water through their root systems and they extract water from the soil uh, from from wherever they happen to be. And this puts them more in an active role of creating water resources. And can you talk a little bit about how healthy plant ecosystems can actually increase the rainfall in areas that, uh, that they affect as an overall pattern facilitated through this evapotranspirative process? Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thing that we can think about plants as a kind of pump. So they're pumping carbon down into the soil and they're pumping water up through the roots. Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to so trying to zone in on one of the many examples that I've seen. Okay, so um, I'm going to settle in on, I know the way I'm talking, it's almost like, you know, I've got a globe spinning and I'm going to point my fingers. So, um, I'm thinking about Chihuahua, Mexico. All right. So this is an air, a large grassland ecosystem, much of which is desertifying and some of which is also being intensively farmed 
through industrial practices, which is having some really intense impacts on this on this land. All right. So and for people's references, this is the province that's like right below Texas and New Mexico. Right. In Arizona. And it's it's the largest state in all of Mexico. And yeah, so it's vast. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's a it's a big ranching culture. And there are ranchers that practice holistic planned grazing, which is um, following on Alan Savory's work and other people. There are, you know, various kind of schools within the holistic planned grazing network. And so they are working with their cattle in a way that mimics the behavior of large herds of bison and, and um, bighorn sheep and other animals that had always been not only on that landscape, but helping to create that landscape. So mimicking the, the natural grassland ecosystem. So, uh, and, and now employing the cattle as vehicles for restoring that landscape in addition to being a product in and of themselves in for grass-fed beef. So I went down to Chihuahua, Mexico a few years ago because I learned about collaboration between the um, bird conservation organizations and these holistic ranchers. And I thought that was really interesting because certainly back then, now it's more known, I, you didn't think about these two factions as having much in common. But as it turned out, the areas that were, were managed this way had tremendous bird populations, whereas in much of the region, the the numbers had been, had plummeted, sometimes down to 80%. And these bird conservation organizations based in the U.S., had assumed that it was that there were problems in the they were looking at the the summer this, um, migration up up in the Great Plains, but then they realized that these birds were spending seven months of the year in the Chihuahuan Desert grasslands, and those grasslands were disappearing. So they then were, saw that where these ranchers were, that the birds were very happy. And it's really interesting to understand how, how, how these synergies work because the birds like a kind of mosaic. So, so with different levels of grasses, and that's something that these ranchers can emulate. And what they, what the birds had been used to before humans came in and and changed the landscape were these large kind of grassland systems with small natural and confined um, burns. Some are, um, you know, um, lightning burns. So, yeah. Um, Now, driving around that area, as I did with these ranchers, I saw just like really dry, desiccated, barren landscapes. And then you go to their ranches and there is an abundance of moisture in this, in the, you see in the, in the rich lush grasses. And that's of course, reflecting the moisture also in the soil. And I remember Alejandro Carrillo, 
his, he said, he laughed when he said that his neighbor said to him, well, of, of course your grasses look better. You get more rain on your ranch, which of course is very amusing because they're only, you know, like a couple of hundred yards from each other. But the point is that when you're able to hold the moisture in the ground, you have a lot more water. And then if you take it one step further, because that moisture is constantly circulating, you're also creating the conditions for more rain. I mean, you know, I'm not about to say that he gets more rain than the neighbor, but he's certainly creating the conditions for rainfall, for the plants to be cycling that moisture. And then when there are trees, for those trees to pull in that moisture. So, yeah, um, Alan Savory has, a, has a, a line when he always talks about it's not as much rainfall you get, you receive that's important, but whether that rainfall is effective. And I also saw in spending time on that ranch kind of the many levels in which this works. So one of the reasons, one of the things that I was exploring down there was the role of the connection between water and biodiversity. And the story that I expected to tell and certainly was able to tell is that when the water cycle is functioning better, that you have greater biodiversity. And that makes sense. You're able to support more species. You don't have areas that are desertified and cannot support plant and animal life, that you have more insects and more butterflies and, and all of that, and birds, of course. And all of that proved to be true. But what I didn't expect to find, and I thought was really, really interesting, was the impact that biodiversity has on the water cycle. And that's something that I saw there, that the greater the biodiversity you have, the more effective the water cycle can be, because you have all these different creatures, from prairie dogs to earthworms to dung beetles to all these little insects and soil microorganisms that haven't even been labeled, that they're all moving through the ground, creating large and small spaces for water to be meander through. And because the water is slowed down, it lingers in a, longer in the landscape. So that was really interesting. Yeah, that's a fantastic example that really illustrates the points not only how the water cycle is working in that area and can perhaps be restored, but how all of those pieces are connected in the holistic aspect of the climate and the ecosystem that they're working with. And now we've talked about, you know, a positive example of how this is starting to improve. We also have a better understanding because of your explanation of how the entire cycle works in relation to climate moderation. But can you tell us some of the main things that are starting to well, not starting to, but have already broken the water cycle at key points or have damaged it in some way that it cannot function the way it's supposed to and is kind of creating these sort of run-on or perhaps domino effects later down in the ecological food chain. 
Right. Um, okay. Well, there are many factors. One is paving over soil. So just, I mean, the extent to which our planet is being paved over and built upon is really, really huge. And any time you, like, I'm just looking around, my house, okay? When you build a house, you have altered the water cycle. And that's just a house. Think about every road, every parking lot, every highway. You're altering the water cycle on many levels. First of all, when the water hits that spot, that's one thing, and also how the water flows. So every road is not just a conveyor for traffic or for foot, you know, for people to walk upon. That is also a waterway. And it was really interesting when I, um, when I visited a couple in far west Texas and they had a huge area of land that they were working with. And um, Catherine Otmers, who was one of Catherine and Marcus were my guides there. It was their land. And Catherine observed that there was a recent rain. And she saw that because the road was angled a certain way, that it caused more erosion than had the road been angled a slightly different you know, just we're we're not always thinking about the water cycle in our built environment. Okay, so so building over land is one way that we have had a negative impact on the water cycle. Another is through deforestation, and that's large scale, but also small scale. Every time you're cutting down trees, you are changing the water cycle, and that's been huge here in Vermont. So. Um, originally Vermont was forested then in the 1800s, it was largely deforested because of the wool trade and that completely altered the water cycle. And that, that gave us the wonderful phenomenon that we know now know as mud season, <laughs> um, because trees hold the soil, trees slow down the movement of water, trees are the basis for whole ecosystems, the synergies of which also manage the way water flows across the landscape. So that's really important. And another way that deforestation and the removal of, um, of plants or the covering up of plants has an impact on the water cycle. I learned about in when I was reporting this recent book, so I went to Spain and spent three days with an extraordinary scientist named Mian Mian, who um, was the director of, um, of a, an institute about the, the environment of the Mediterranean. And what he has been documenting over time is the change in the rain patterns in that region. So he's based in Valencia. And so this is the Western Mediterranean area. And starting in the 1980s, there, there were several years of data about rainfall that did not fit the norm. And he studied this. And basically, in the past, there had been regular summer rains that every day it would be in the summer, it would be really hot. Then you would watch these clouds move in. You'd get a sudden downpour 
and then the air would clear and be cool and it was predictable and the farmers knew that they could depend on this rain and then things changed. And what Mian Mian found is that this was associated with the cutting down of trees in the area and the paving over of soil and the and plants um, due to it being a very appealing area for tourism and for people to live in because it's right on the coast. So, uh, um, you know, hotels and all this other, these other aspects of development. And also in the marshlands, they started to, to drain them and farm. So all of those things changed the water cycle. And what he learned, and I think this is really, really interesting if you start to think of how this can apply to other areas, is that in terms of the concentration of moisture needed to produce that rain, he learned that the moisture coming off the Mediterranean was never enough. That the moisture from the Mediterranean, that you know, movement of, of vapor, was always picking up additional moisture from the trees and the marshland plants, and that was sufficient to make a rain. But when the land was covered over, the trees were taken down, and the wetlands were, were drained, and different plant regimes were there, there wasn't enough. So I, I just think the whole concept of what do you need to make a rain is kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. But, but that insight is really powerful because those dynamics are, are occurring all over the place. And also, he says, and this is a really, really, you know, serious scientist who, you know, who marks his work, makes his words very carefully, that by re strategically reforesting and revegetating the region, we can bring back rain. Now, it doesn't mean that you're snapping a finger and it's going to go back to the way it was. As he says, you may plant and then get rain 75 kilometers to the south, down downwind, but that it can be done. And I think considering that is, I think it's worth considering that very seriously as we think about how we can restore our ecosystems. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember reading that passage in your book and how relevant it is to where I live now. I'm only about three hours drive north from Valencia. I've been down there a couple of times and um, I haven't heard the same talk about how those rain patterns used to come into the summer. Obviously, we're just coming out of the summer now. Um, but I would imagine that the, the same sort of macro climate would be fairly uh, similar in this area and has also suffered from a lot of deforestation and development along the coast of the Mediterranean because the Barcelona area is also, uh, you know, quite a hot spot for tourism. And it makes me wonder, obviously, I haven't lived here for very long, but if uh, there were similar weather patterns that have changed since then, certainly a lot of other people have spoken about how, you know, snow cover doesn't come nearly as often or stick around as long in the winter time. And I'm just starting to sort of get my bearings in a new place. But 
you know, if these opportunities are there, if there's the potential to start to reforest and reinstitute or regenerate the ecosystems that provided these essential services, it seems like there's an obligation for people who are aware of this to start to try and move these initiatives forward. Right. And and one factor there, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that Mian Mian is in his late 70s. And so people who are much younger than him may not know what the land was like. I mean, there's so many examples. I see this all the time when I'm reporting that when like undesertified landscapes or landscapes that have various kinds of challenges that many people just assume that it's always been that way. So that kind of collective memory isn't always there. So just a really powerful example of that was when I was visiting in Chihuahua and Alejandro was was taking me around these different areas and he would look at, I'd see, he'd show me a, a, just a, a vista of, you know, all like it's it, it's just eroded and maybe a few little mesquite plants, but mostly kind of rocky and bare. And to me, that's just what it looked like. And one could always only assume it was always that way. And he said, when I was a child, this was the best land with the best grass. So, you know, having that memory, I, I think is important because it's so easy just to assume, you know, that that's just the way it it is and therefore always will be. Yeah, no, I agree. That's one of the saddest parts of all of these things that are happening now is that my generation included, but ones younger than me as well, and I guess even older ones, have no reference as to what a healthy and truly abundant state of their area as far as ecological health even looks like, because we don't have that reference anymore. And in a lot of cases, it wasn't well preserved. Like, before we started to damage these places, we didn't even have the recording equipment, whether it be cameras or video, to hold on to a record of what was there. And I've, you know, I've done quite a bit of reading in the last year that talk about what the plains in the United States look like and even certain species that have gone extinct that even now would seem totally unfeasible. There were species of birds that were so numerous that, you know, you sometimes think of flocks where they kind of look like a cloud and they kind of move in unison, almost like a school of fish, but in the air. And the, there have been species like that that were completely wiped out of the continent and just aren't there anymore. And without that kind of reference of knowing, like, this was a very, very different place before we started to interact and develop, quote unquote, the way we are now it gets difficult to give a reference as to what it is we're trying to restore. Right. And that's, that's one reason where, you know, I always come back to the importance of imagination. We need to be able to imagine what it was like in the past and using the tools of archives and books and photographs, but also that that can serve to help us imagine what can be because imagining what is possible helps lead us there because if we don't think it's possible well you know what can where are we going to go with it yeah absolutely and so we gotta kind of 
look into some of the biggest causes of the damage and who are some of the culprits in this issue of uh, water cycle health. Now, I know that the biggest consumer of water as an industry is the agricultural one, but I'm really glad that you sort of put a highlight on industries that don't necessarily consume water actively as still becoming barriers to the health and the proper functioning of the water cycle. Can you talk about some of the biggest barriers that we have and that we need to start to dismantle in order to reinstate the health of this system? Well, I would say rethinking agriculture is huge. And I think that, well, okay, so, I mean, I mean, that's such a huge topic, but in terms of the water cycle, I think we really need to look at irrigation very, very seriously because irrigation, you know, we, in, I guess, in, to some extent it is necessary, but how we do it is important, but also to understand that irrigation does not come without costs. Okay, there's obviously the cost of of using water in situations where you may be using water up. I mean, we all know about the Ogallala Reservoir, um, which is being tapped. And we know about um, in places like the Central Valley of California, where we're using up groundwater and we're getting subsidence. But not many people know that in Saudi Arabia, you know, which we know of as a, you know, very dry desert area that there has been, there's a lot of fossil water that was used to grow wheat. And that has been largely used up. And so where does that end up? Anyway, just speaking of Saudi Arabia, I hope this isn't too much of a tangent, but just I found it very powerful the way that um, Neil Spackman, a, a practitioner who's done an incredible project there, how he made it a priority to not overdraw the water bank, to collect water, but never to use more water than he collected. Because that ethic is not present in our agricultural system. I mean, the fact that we're overdrawing water all over the place is just, you know, I mean, it's, it's asking for trouble. The other thing with irrigation is that you end up with a lot of kind of hard water. Uh, you know, you get a lot of mineral deposits and um, salinity. And the only way to deal with salinity in the soil is to kind of flush it out with more water. So irrigation comes with lots and lots of costs. But um, yeah, the scale of the agriculture that we're doing is really asking us to mistreat our water supplies and a more decentralized, um, regionalized, localized, focusing our production that way, well, not only will it help us manage our water better, but also give us greater food security because we saw with the beginning of the, the COVID crisis how our supply chains, our global supply chains, were not as robust as we thought they were, and they were only able to get them to be more solid by, you know, I would say, um, asking the impossible of food workers and farmers. 
And, you know, certainly people in meatpacking plants and, you know, putting people at risk. And, um, yeah, no. So for many, many, many reasons, it's really important that we relocalize our food supplies and food, food, our food production. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm really glad that you used the example of Neil Spackman's work in Saudi Arabia. I've had him on the podcast twice now, and I'll definitely refer listeners here to check out those previous interviews if you want to hear more in depth about his project. But your profile of him in the book, The Reindeer Chronicles, is a really good write-up and summary of his project and what he's been able to achieve there. And to further expand on what you're talking about with the irrigation that he was using to get the trees established in an area of runoff in order to collect the water that came from the mountains above and they were actually able to collect more water once the plants were established than they ever had used in the irrigation process kind of throwing the the preconceived notion that when you have plants in a parched area that all they do is use up more water but by managing the landscape correctly by harvesting rainwater and even having the plants there created more of a resource than it actually extracted. And it, it just starts to show the potential of understanding an entire ecosystem rather than breaking it down into basic components. Right. Yeah. No, that's such a powerful story. And, and so important that we understand the capacity. Well, I guess that's your, you know, the name of your podcast to create abundance rather than working from the scarcity mindset, which creates fear and that and that scarcity mindset i think drives our current agricultural system because it's kind of like we better use up this groundwater while 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 we have it as opposed to how can we build our water resources because agriculture is working with plants and we know that plants can tr create manage and regenerate moisture so the answer is right before us. It's just a matter of figuring out in each context what's the best way to make it work. And so I'll ask you now to give me another example from your book, and specifically the one on the lowest plateau, which I believe illustrates really well a similar project as to that of Neil Spackman and the Al Beda project in Saudi Arabia, but predates it a bit with John D. Liu's documentation of the effort in China to rehabilitate the land of the lowest plateau and restore it to health. Can you give me a profile on that? Sure, yeah. No, this is kind of like the big, you know, granddaddy of examples of contemporary ecological restoration. Um, so the, the story here is that this is, the Los Plateau is, it's a pretty large region and it is the, it was for many thousands of years, the breadbasket of China. And it is where agriculture developed in China around the same time as it did in the, in the Fertile Crescent. So, you know, we've been going for 10,000 years here in this land and the land is getting degraded. The quality of this particular ecosystem is that it's loess soil, which is fine powdery soil. It's mineral rich soil. It's actually the same kind of soil that you have in Iowa. I remember the first time I ever saw the word loess, which I think is how you pronounce it, um, is was when we were living in Iowa and I took our son to the museum and 
Anyway, I'm just laughing now because it was many years before I wrote a book about soil and the whole um, exhibit was about soil. So, um, so this powdery soil, it, it, it drifts. So when it, you lose the, you know, when the, the land degrades, it, the, the soil, um, you know, silt, it silted up the Yellow River, which was causing a problem and it was, and they were getting a lot of erosion and basically the land was desertifying and losing all this soil and i mean by the time i guess by let's say that the 1970s 80s all people were unable to feed themselves they were really unable to to grow to grow food they had their animals, their wealth was their animals, and they were, they had been, I guess, you know, like what often happens in these kinds of situations is that the agriculture moves from the riverbeds up to the hillsides, and then when you, when you start denuding the plant life on the hillsides, you get erosion, and all of that was happening, and in John's documentaries, you see people going up, taking their goats up the hills, and maybe there's a few tufts of grass that these goats are eating. And um, yeah, it was really, really bad. So the, so the Chinese government, in conjunction with the World Bank and other entities, decided to restore this area, to rehabilitate this degraded landscape, which was really a very bold effort and they brought in hydrologists, geologists, biologists, chemists, economists, lots of economists. And they developed a program and which, you know, was fairly simple. Um, one big factor was, was kind of gating off, um, penning the animals. You know, I know in, in most contexts that's not a very good practice, but it was important to allow that land to recover from the constant overgrazing. So that was one thing they did. They terraced the land so that the water slowed down and stayed um, in the soil, and they did lots and lots of planting. They planted trees, they planted other shrubs, and anyway, um, the, it, it worked. And the land where the animals had been started to recover. And there's some wonderful, wonderful footage that, that John has in which through kind of time lapse showing, you know, stringing together the footage from 1995 and 2009, you can actually watch that land go from like, you know, it's just down to the bones of the earth. It's just, you know, totally bare and barren to all green. And yeah, and no one really imagined. I mean, they had the plans, but I think that the, what the result exceeded their, what their best hopes. And what's interesting is that it was only by accident that John actually got that footage because he, he um, got to know um, Jürgen Vogli, who was the um, director of the project through the World Bank. And through their children, 
their 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 children went to school together, and they, um, you know, Jorgen casually asked John just to take a few pictures, and John said that he, you know, just on his own he wouldn't have thought that this would be very interesting, but it's only in retrospect when you see the tremendous changes, and so that record is so valuable, and of course that changed. John Liu's life tremendously because he says that once you know that it is possible to rehabilitate large-scale damaged ecosystems, well, then you are virtually obliged to do it. If we know that we can do it, we sort of have to do it because this is repairing the earth. This is giving the possibility of meaningful lives to millions of people. I mean, literally millions of people were brought out of poverty. And that's a big important part of that project as well, is that it has had a big economic impact on that area. And I know that some people criticize this type of ecological work saying, well, it's, you know, it's going to cost all this money and we don't know exactly how we're going to make our money back and look at it in kind of these reduced um, business type of evaluations. But the economic productivity has also really improved from that area. And people who are, who are farmers there have more than doubled their income since these changes and restoration techniques have been implemented, right? Right. I mean, they're able to support themselves and then, you know, ha- yeah, in a, and in a way that they hadn't before. I mean, these are people who were living in caves, and the stories that were told of that time beforehand of grandmothers refusing food and dying so that they could be sure that there was food enough for the children in the extended family. I mean, this is poverty like I don't think many of us can even imagine. And and meaning in life. I mean, the pride that we all have. I mean, this is universal in in sustaining ourselves, in being productive, in creating abundance and creating beauty, because it's a lot more aesthetic. And I mean, what can be more meaningful than restoring the land in which you live? You know, another point that John makes that I think is really powerful, because often we you know, when we're looking at numbers and, you know, and numbers of hectares and this and that, you know, we're not always thinking about the the human side. But what John says is that, you know, our landscapes are a reflection of our consciousness. And I think that is really powerful. Because if we're suffering, can we create an abundant aesthetic landscape, but also if we're living in in a desertified, um, non-productive kind of, um, you know, wound of a ecosystem, wounded ecosystem, can we feel whole? I think that we really neglect the profound connection that we as humans have with our landscapes. That's really well said. And it's something that I connect with deeply too. has been a big motivation in getting me into this line of work. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier with how John felt transformed by seeing that this was possible and how it completely 
changed the trajectory and the dedication of his life, it's actually had a direct impact on me because he went on to found the Ecosystem Restoration Camps nonprofit. And I now work as the Ecosystem Restoration Coordinator for that organization and am helping to work with the camps all around the world to find and design the correct implementation for their own pieces of land. And uh, it's, it's amazing to see how, you know, an inspiring project like that can really create the catalyst for a movement and affect so many people either directly or indirectly. And, you know, I think that's also something that you do really well in your book is highlight these inspiring examples of what is possible when people take the time to really understand their context on a deeper level and put together the pieces, whether it's community or governmental or financing or all of them together in some way to create something that is much larger than just, you know, perhaps the economic benefit or perhaps just working to restore the rain cycle or the fertility to the soil, but they all have connections that build upon one another. And that's really where regeneration is possible. That's fabulous. I didn't know that you were that you had taken on that role. And about the ecosystem restoration camps, you know, I just think it's so incredible that when I went to Camp Altiplano in in Spain, um, I guess it was, gosh, not even two years ago, that was the first camp, and there were only two at the time. And less than two years later, how many are there? More than twenty, right? We've got more than 20 and we are working on onboarding nearly 30 in the upcoming year. It's really taken off. And, oh, that is um, so incredible. And Sylvia down in Altiplano has been doing amazing work down there too. I was actually in contact with her recently. It's, uh, it's something that's growing really fast and I'm really looking forward to all of the new initiatives that are being onboarded soon. That's so wonderful. And I remember back in 2015 at the Paris Climate Summit, um, I was with a delegation mm. from Regeneration International and we got together with John and he kept talking about, let, he kept saying, let's go camping. We need mm. to go camping. And <laughs> it, it just, you know, and it sounded like, oh, it's just this thing he's talking about. Yeah, these camps. And anyway, he did it. <laughs> he made it happen. Yeah, you know, it was always a good idea, but you know, you think like, really? Anyway, it's <laughs> no it's a huge fabulous. credit to him, and there's an amazing team behind that organization as well. And I'm only one of the newer additions, but it's really starting to take off. And I mean, hopefully, these are going to be the projects that end up in the books and the documentaries in the next couple of years for the successes that they've had in restoring their own places and. Uh, I really think this is something that's starting to gain steam and really being picked up as people realize, I mean, partly because of the pandemic that we find ourselves in and realizing how closely connected that is with the damaged ecosystems that we've started to take for granted as if they were just normal, as if this is what we were, I guess, condemned to live in and there weren't other options. But these types of profiles and success stories really fly in the face of that especially when you get into they're not all big budget projects and a lot of them started with you know gathering a couple of community members together who decided that they wanted something better and that they were going to start to look for solutions and get other people to help them and I mean just having a, a finger on the pulse of the types of projects that are taking off with that same mentality with that same motivation is is hugely inspiring and work like yours is really propelling this forward even faster. And so 
Before we wrap up here, can you tell me a little about a project in New Mexico that you were able to sit in on um, where people in a parched area of the state were conflicting over water resources and the person who helped to come in there and ask some essential questions that changed how they looked at their situation? Yeah, well, this is certainly an example of where the state of the land is a reflection of the state of our consciousness. So, so this is a community. It's called Cabzon. It's a. It's actually a ghost town in um, in New Mexico, about an hour and a half outside of Albuquerque. Um, and there's land that the Bureau of Land Management in the U.S. manages, and there are people who have whose families have lived there for hundreds of years, and there are ranching allotments, and then there's a small little town nearby where people have some homes. And so what was happening was there were fights over access to the pump house and all these conflicts emerged over who, which, whether it's the domestic water board, the rancher, so the townspeople versus the ranchers and things got really heated up and there was gunfire and sabotage and someone got shot and someone broke their arm and and it just got really really tense and these these are people whose families have known each other for generations so whereas they used to have cookouts get-togethers all this people then at this point were saying i can't bring my children around to to our land because I don't feel safe there. I don't feel that they can be safe there. So, wow. so what was happening is that all these skirmishes and fights and arguments kept inter get, kept erupting, and the Bureau of Land Management kept coming in to try to work things out, and it was a drain on the bureau's resources. And um, different people were suing each other, and I mean, you know, it was a point where. He, like I think the domestic board was suing um, the other board, but also themselves. Anyway, it was really getting out of hand. So as a last ditch effort, the BLM hired my colleague, Jeff Goebel of the community consensus Institute. And he has this model of deep listening with group processes, helping groups through through conflict, usually around land, because that is Jeff's background. So what he was able to do was over the course of a weekend, so people, not every, so a core group of about 30 people came and I have to say, I admire them. They took a risk. They took a risk to sit down with people they've been arguing with and be honest with the others and with themselves. But the key was creating the conditions, creating trust among the group that enabled that to happen. So over a weekend, now, you know, in retrospect, I could say a weekend is a really short period of time. I can be honest and tell you that it felt really slow at times mm -hmm. and kind of tedious, <laughs> but 
that's when you see that that's part of that every piece of the process was important because in retrospect i can see where different community members kind of things clicked for them at different times sometimes it was understanding that the fear of conflict was actually creating the kind of the kinds of negative consequences that they were trying to avoid by avoiding conflict so different people were kind of getting it in different ways and anyway through this process the community de determined to not only get past their arguments but to work for the betterment of the land and in the beginning of the process they weren't even talking about the land everyone was saying everything we just need to stop fighting we just need and most of the time people were saying the other side needs to under, needs to listen to me and then we need to stop fighting and everything will be fine and then people started to understand that the condition of the land was part of what was leading to their sense of despair, their sense of scarcity, their ongoing worry, and their kind of suspicions of each other. And what was really interesting is that while holistic plan grazing was not part of the initial topic, it was kind of dropped in there through one little video, several of the ranchers had become very, very involved in applying that to their own land and in educating others in learning how to better manage their livestock in order to restore the land. Wow. Yeah. So it was really, it was really quite amazing. So there's three questions that he asked in sequence that I found were really useful. And obviously they are illustrated how they were applied to this disagreement between the ranchers but do you remember those or would you like me to go through them well um i think well um how do you perceive the situation and how do you feel about it Be and that's important because not everyone perceives the situation you know you're all sitting in the same in in this situation in, in the same scenario but many people may may perceive it differently and hearing how others see it can in itself be useful then there's what is the worst possible outcome you know and that's the one that throws you because usually you've been doing everything possible to avoid thinking about what it is that you fear but by articulating that it sort of like releases it like, and you realize just how much energy you have been devoting to kind of suppressing your fear. And then what's the best possible outcome? And usually we don't even allow ourselves to think about it because we're so focused on avoiding the worst possible outcome. And then the one after articulating the best possible outcome and by articulating it, it becomes possible, then it's what would that look like and what might it take to get there? What might, what might you do? Let's say you can get there. What would that look like? 
you know, what kinds of changes might that involve? And the amazing thing is that when you've articulated what it is that you aspire to, and you begin to think of even just one thing that you might do, then all these ideas come pouring out. And you see that there's much you can do. I'll just give you a really quick example um, from Jeff's work that I think illustrates this so powerfully. So he was brought in um, in the 1990s to a region of Mali where in Africa where 12 different tribes were at war with each other and people were starving. Anyway, it was just a, it was a mess. And he was brought in and he got together with people and he said, he asked them, what do they want? And they said, we would like to be able to produce more food. And he said, um, okay, um, why can't you do this? And then he, they said, you know, because people are fighting, because we, the soil is bad, because the rains are bad, because people are lazy. And so then Jeff said, okay, now that we know it's impossible... We'll just accept that it's impossible. What if it were possible? Let's just like take that leap. What if it were possible? What would you do? And then all these ideas came, came, came coming out, you know, like we would put in cover crops. We would manage our, our livestock differently. We would divide our land so that we have, or we would, you know, set up structures that, that we are fighting more and less and that the pastoralists and the farmers could you know share the land in a different way anyway so so then he came so then he left and he came back 50 oh and then he said that those are all great ideas do you think that you can improve your your increase your production 10 percent? and they said yeah sure how about 20 percent? yeah if we work really hard you know they agreed that they could they could probably do 20 percent and then he said how about 50 percent and they all looked at each other and they said, no, 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 that's too much. And he said, I'd like, let's see if you could increase your food production 50%. So then he left and 15 months later, he came back and he was on the long road to this village and was still about half a kilometer away when all these people started running up to the Jeep he was in. And they were so excited and they wanted to show him what they had done. They had increased food production 78%. <laughs> it's amazing. And you told that story perfectly. That's actually exactly what I was trying to get at when I prompted you with the question. And just how powerful these types of questions that break down pre-assumed uh, ideas are. The, the presumptions that we had that things wouldn't work just because we had thought it up or agreed upon it in our minds. And that, to me, is, is a testament to the power of well-crafted questions at breaking down those assumptions, freeing you up to take action in a new way. Yeah, and also it's an illustration of how, how our beliefs can limit us. And we don't see that because we, that's part of our kind of armor we carry around with us all the time. On that note, what advice would you give to people who are looking to start a regenerative pro project or an initiative or something with their community and are not sure how to go about it or where to begin? Wow. Um, 
Well, you said something powerful, and that's ask some good questions. I would say give yourself a lot of room. And, you know, now this is something I've learned through holistic planned grazing, through holistic management. You know, always write your, your plan in pencil. And then once you've kind of done a round of it, then you write it in pen so you can keep records. So just know that you're going to make mistakes and, be, and know that you can learn from them. Don't be afraid of them. Um, I would say, yeah, think of what's possible and use your imagination. Yeah, use your imagination as a tool, you know, not as a kind of avoidance, like, you know, like let's have fabulous dreams so that we don't have to look at the reality, but, you know, as a tool to really stretch yourself and imagine what is possible and learn from these other projects. So I've learned so much from podcasts like yours, from Earth Repair Radio, um, and from, there are, a lot, there are a lot of them now. And all of those stories, sometimes it's really, really fun to listen to stories from such like, you know, exotic, different parts of the world. And it's wonderful to listen to those in part because, you know, something can spark what actually makes sense for where you are too. That even from the most remote areas, we can apply some of those insights where we are. And I'd say approaching in the spirit of learning and um, experimenting and observing nature and allowing yourself to, to love the land where you are with all of its wounds and all of its hidden pasts and secrets that you come to, you come to learn about. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it is in, in the spirit of it. Um, I'm not sure if I'm getting at what you're saying, but I guess um, I guess a couple of things. What when when John Liu talks about what are what is the basis of of restoring an ecosystem? He says he talks about it as three basic trends: rising biodiversity, rising soil organic matter, and rising biomass. So increasing, focusing on increasing those and the, those three functions. And those, of course, build on each other. And those also support the water cycle. So working with the water cycle, you know, understanding how water flows, and there are some great resources of, about that from Mark Shepard's new book, Water for Any Farm, and Brad Lancaster's work on rainwater harvesting. There, there are a lot of great examples out there. Really understanding the water cycle and focusing on that. And through that, focusing on those three factors, biomass, soil organic matter, and biodiversity. And even if you're, if you're not someone, I mean, if you're someone in like, you know, a suburban area or, um, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking right here where I am. When I had um, a brilliant um, water 
retention landscape designer, Zach Weiss, he came to visit because his family, he grew up very close to where I am. And when he pointed out that the fact that we are here has altered the water cycle on the mountain that I live on, um, he said that we all can sort of work to make the water cycle even more functional, almost like kind of making amends through the through how we manage water. We can all do that. We can harvest the rainwater. We can look at the way water flows and ensure that it's not flowing so fast that we're losing topsoil and causing damage or or getting water logged elsewhere. So we, we can, on any scale, we can start to apply these insights. That's wonderful advice. I couldn't agree more. And you used examples from a lot of my own favorite references that have been on the podcast in the past. I'll put links to the interview I did with Mark Shepard on the book that you referenced. And uh, I've actually got one with Zach Weiss coming up during this series. I'm not sure if it's going to come out before or after this one, but uh, that's something to look out to for listeners. And before I let you go, can you tell the people who have tuned in so far, how they can find the rest of your books and get in touch with you and learn more about your work. Sure. Yeah. So um, I created a new website and that is very simply judithdschwartz.com. And I answer all of my emails and certainly through Chelsea Green Publishing, all three of my books are available and just the regular old search engine routine will land you on various podcasts and articles and all of that. Although I'm trying to keep up on, um, on my website. Um, I will say some, one more little thing about, about um, search engines. I don't know how many of your listeners know about, about Ecosia. Dot .org. Yeah. yeah. So so that If they don't they should check out previous episodes cuz I interviewed their lead tree planting officer and I've spoken about them in the past. They're a great organization. Perfect. It makes me cringe when people say, "Oh, I'll just Google it." Because wait, yeah. wait, there's an alternative that will plant trees. Yeah, you can plant trees at the same time. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, so that's how to find me. I'm around. I'm also on go. Twitter and Facebook. All right. Well, I'll be sure to put all of those in the links for the show notes on this episode. And Judas, thank you so much for your time today. It was really refreshing to get some great stories on this podcast as well. And all of the solid information on kind of bringing together the information that makes it make sense how water is so essential to the climate discussion and needs to be a bigger part of it. So thank you for that. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. Well, take care. We'll be in touch. Bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. 
Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.